I'm Ace Colwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. Now, it is distinctly recorded radio and not a podcast. I don't understand why you refuse to call this thing a podcast, because I don't download this to my MacBook, then transfer it over to my iPod so that I can listen to it later. I just I, The easy answer is I don't believe in podcasts. Uh, the longer answer is it's that we've pretended podcasts are this brand new, innovative thing, and they're not. We've had microphones, we've had airwaves, we've had people willing to listen to two Muppets talk for years. This is on-demand radio, and I think we should call it that. And so your podcast is not new. You're just doing the same thing that MCs for years and years past have do have done. So and that's what we're doing. So welcome to Envoy Recorded Radio. Everybody will be sent a vinyl disc for you to play on your record player. It will arrive in around three weeks. So we're going to have a sponsor for each episode. Yeah. Uh, in no cases is that sponsor paying for the episode, and in no case does the sponsor actually get permission over whether their name is attached to it. So this week is uh, Brittany Brittany Huff. Uh, who you know why this is yours, Brittany, but this is your episode sending you love and deep hugs and just some deep concern about how you pronounce your name because Perry has just advised me that it's Brittany Huff, not Brittany Howe, which just blows my mind. So when Brits read um, that, I've just alienated an entire segment of our audience. I'm sorry. Uh, This is more about Scott Wayne trying to pronounce a thing in the way that Americans do. So, Brittany, we see you. I look forward to when we get a snow shower next month to Perry riding his snow pluff around the streets. Anyway, moving on. So you wanted to talk about the holidays. Yeah, let's talk about the holidays. Um, uh, The the holidays... uh, my observation is we come back from the holidays and everybody says, oh my God, did you have a great holiday? Are you rested? And I find that increasingly my answer is, no, I'm not rested, but yes, I had a pretty solid holiday. Um, so first, I'm wondering how you're feeling. How are, how are you? As we're at the end of January, yeah. right? Like We've been back a couple weeks, back in the swing of things. How, how are you? How were the holidays? I clearly know the answer to that question already. Scott. I don't feel we're allowed to answer this question. Yeah, I no. feel like there's, but that's en- what this is. Enormous social pressure. I, I'll jump in. Uh, the holidays aren't for me. They're, <laughs> they're not. They're not for me, and I mean that so so Literally. intentionally. Um, the holidays are for people I love dearly, doing things that they love, of which I am included. I won't like ask why, but it, <laughs> the people that I care about are filled up through the holidays and do things that are important to them and we have traditions and things to go see and people to visit and that's beautiful but if I'm thinking about what would be ideal for me it's not uh, running around scrambling to buy gifts and then sitting in sometimes a crowded house with noise and like I just want to unplug and detox and rest and I'd sleep 16 hour days and that's not the holidays. So it's the holidays was social time, yeah. not rest and recuperation it, time. It's not rest and recuperation. And and so I think societally we have this idea that Thanksgiving through Christmas is like downshift and don't do. And it's not either of those. It's just shift energy from professional work to social family work. To social and that, work. Yeah. that work is important, right? It's I don't want to discount the work. I'm just saying if we get to January 1 and the expectation is rested, uh, that has never been the case for me. I am not seeing in our team or with our clients a group of rested people in January. No. I'm I'm yeah. We're no. having to 
all of us together, clients and ourselves, spool up yeah. and like crank up. And I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not seeing the rest of the people. I do think there's something around. I think it's slightly different between Europe and and North America, particularly the United States. On this, is that I'm convinced that Americans and Europeans have the same amount of vacation, of time off, except one is formal and legal, and the other is hidden, mm. and that. That America, there is just this requirement for for humans to take time off. So let's say the average is five to six weeks in Europe, and the average in the U.S. is is two to three weeks. I think Americans squeeze out those three weeks in August and between Thanksgiving and December yeah. by, for what I can best describe as just pretend work, is mm. that we're sort of we're we're on but we're not, and I don't think that's very healthy. Because you're not actually off. No, you're, you're not. You're sort of you're pseudo, kind of, sort of, maybe. Yeah, possibly. You're off. taking that. You're, you're taking that Zoom call um, from the line at Target or wherever. Yeah. Um, where on the other hand, you know, the Brits are just in the pub, you know, doing all the shopping. Well, it's not. It's not entirely the case. Actually, I think the U.S. system is, is actually creeping over, particularly to the U.K. I think it's creeping over. Yeah, I, and I, it, whether that's good or not is probably a whole that's fodder for an entire other recorded radio show. But I, I, a kudos to one of our clients. Um, we we just met up with her, and she told us she took the first week of January oh, off. She did, and that sounds like I think about the best holiday season I've ever had. And I was uh, I was in a new town. Um, some folks were gracious, uh, gracious enough to invite me to their cabin with a bunch of their friends between Christmas and uh, New Year's. And so leading up to New Year's, I didn't know any of their friends, so I didn't have to be social. And I slept, I swear it was 16 hours a day, and I'd wake up to like eat and knock out a couple beers with the crew and walk in the snow for an hour and then go back to sleep. And it was beautiful. And I was properly rested coming back to work. And that's the only time that I've felt that way. And so to hear people are now like, let me just take the first week of January off and not pretend that I'm going to be productive because I've just come off the holidays where I was in service of kids and grandparents and parents and family. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm exploring. I'm starting to plan end of January for what end of December looks like this year. Oh, interesting. I'm thinking yeah. about it. What is West yeah. going to look like for us? Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that next year. I see I how like you do. I like it. The... Um, We'll post photographs of now and next year and see if you look rested. Less haggard. The, uh, Perry, could we get a photograph of this? Super. So, so before we leave the holidays, just the, the, the travel nightmare that happened in the United States. Oh, yeah. I just want to share a little bit of social media experience that, mm. as you know, I have all of three followers on social media. <laughs> um, but I happened to post uh, after the Southwest debacle, yeah, the meltdown was of Southwest Airlines, that we had got to know um, – quite a number of Southwest employees over the past year, not because they're clients, they're not clients at all, um, but through an association, through the Global Business Travel Association that we, yep. that we do do work with. And all I'd sort of written was they're having a terrible time. Their model doesn't really fit responding to a storm like this because Southwest doesn't have hubs where it has mm -hmm. backup locations. And having got to know the team a little bit, I'm sure they'll navigate this through. So I posted that. I don't know why I posted it. I just did. The response to it, was the piece that was interesting. Was it, the, it was long. There was, was quite long, a bit of response. Somewhat vitriolic. <clears throat> Fascinating. It's, it's, but one would expect that. It's social media. The bit that was interesting to me was that, with one exception, all of the commentary was from, was from men, white mm. men. And I, because I became intrigued by this, most of whom were not connected to me, mm -hmm. and then I rummaged to try to find, with lots of opinions about what Southwest should have done, 
whether there was any aviation experience in the people that were commenting, and I, mm. I couldn't find a drop. The one <laughs> exception, there was one woman that wrote a comment, and she did have experience in the travel sector. Now, I disagreed with what she happened to write, but sure. she, she came from an expertise. So I'm just going to sort of park that there. It was just it was an interesting experience in deep views about how an airline should run um, from only one demographic and um, with no experience. <laughs> aren't, 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 I feel like we're finding that across platform, across sector, across uh, conversation, like this this idea of being an armchair expert, right? COVID kicked off. We had armchair epidemiologists just out yeah. the wazoo. Um, and and that uh, the death of expertise is fascinating because everybody can have an opinion. Everybody can have a damn in recorded radio show and put their views out into the world. Anybody Who would do can that? do that. Who, Who would, would do that? that? Uh, but yeah, no, I, there, as we think about the world of making decisions and uh, accessibility to not only information, but an ability to share that, I'm finding there's more and more of a delta between those who choose to go uh, seek out quality information and consume quality information, and then those who are willing to share subpar information widely and loudly to folks. And so I, I'm finding that as I'm on various platforms, I'm looking for folks who are more intentional about what they share and how they articulate it. Um, Matt Wallert comes to mind. Um, he was uh, He's a behavioral scientist, um, was a mentor of mine as I was building, I don't know, one of the tech companies back in the day. And he's just incredible in how intentional he is about what he shares. And I find that that's not the case. Like, that's just, that's, that's me ranting on my on-demand radio show about my frustration with people sharing information that's not quality. So I'm going to do a plug for a newsletter on the other side of that, the Atlantic. Oh. It's, called, it's a newsletter um, by the name of The Knowledge. Google it and you'll find it. It's a free newsletter, okay. but it's written by the founder of um, a publication called The Week, which mm -hmm. uh, I think it's still around, but it would summarize like the week's news. It was trying to provide context for things, um, but The Knowledge is a really good, it's, it's, it skews UK news, but it covers global things, mm. and it's, it, it's contextualized mm. information, which it's, and it's a really good read as well, and it's quite funny. So look it up. It's can, the knowledge. They, they do not pay us for this. Can we stay here, though? Because um, yeah. what I'd, A, love is whoever has tuned into this as you're getting ready in the morning and listening to The Muppet I Show. I love you think um, that somebody's Somebody's listening to, to, listen this. to this. Somebody yes. is. Uh, I, I would love if you'd share the thing that you might consume that you think is quality. Because I'll plug uh, one of my morning reads is the flip side. And it's a, it's an incredible newsletter. Um, so they take two or three major topics from the day prior, and then they they give you just the straight up. Here's what happened. Can we get as close to just fact as possible? Yep. But then they give you snippets from the right, snippets from the left, and then they'll give you an independent or two. And so they'll just pull excerpts of the articles. They'll link to the articles so you can read fully. But it gives you this balanced like here's the information, the news. Here's the the editorialized versions of that from various political backgrounds and we can just own our leaning or our bias as we're reading the information and like it's a good just summary of major things that happened and why these folks might think this way and the other side might see it differently it's called the and flip side it's called the flip okay. side i really do we'll, we'll put links to both of those yeah. um with with this um 
with this recorded radio session. Um, I want to just jump back very quickly to okay. the holidays. It is uh, the Lunar New Year. Happy Lunar New Year to all of those who celebrate it. And we hope that your holidays are more restful than the ones we've just described that we came through yeah. in our culture in December. <laughs> so, oh, armchair expertise. Yeah. Uh, of course, everybody's an expert upon what weapons should be going to Ukraine. I just wanted to touch on, we spend a lot of time coaching on negotiation. What's going on with Germany and tanks right now? Yeah. So you may have read about this campaign called Free the Leopards. What that refers to are leopard tanks that are uh, constructed in Germany by a company called Rheinmetall. I think it's Rheinmetall. And the Ger German export licenses for military equipment often come, the contract comes with a a clause that requires that a, a country that buys particular types of equipment can't re-export it to another country mm. without permission of the exporting country. So Germany makes leopard tanks. Lots of European countries have these. They're a very high-performance main battle tank. Uh, so Finland has these. Poland has these. Um, I'm trying to think other other countries. The Dutch. But you can't re-export them without the permission of Germany. So mm -hmm. currently, Poland is wanting to donate Leopard tanks to Ukraine, which is the main asset of the Ukrainians at the moment. And they can't do so without a waiver from the German government. The German government have been ducking and avoiding this, yeah. probably for domestic pressure, because there's still a large body of the German electorate that do not want to further, further antagonize Russia. And so it's just been interesting, whatever your opinions on this, watching the mechanics of the mm -hmm. Ukrainians making the ask the the British um, breaking precedent that we're not sending main battle tanks. So in spite of the fact the Americans have donated um, Bradley um, armored infantry vehicles, which are not technically tanks, though you see these things. Remember that time the guy stole what was called a tank and drove it through the streets yeah, of Richmond? Ar armored vehicle. It wasn't actually yeah. a tank. It was an yeah, armored yeah. infantry vehicle. So they're on their way in. And then so the UK send a squadron, which is only 12 main battle tanks, which is something called the Challenger 2. But we don't have many tanks. We live on an island. We have mm -hmm. a very just small number of them. And that was supposed to sort of break precedent to allow the Germans to then give clearance. That has not happened. All that happened was the Germans reframed the whole thing. So when we talk about reframing and negotiation, the Germans went, yeah, that doesn't really matter what those people on the island are doing. We need the Americans to send their tanks, Abrams, before we're willing to do it. And that hasn't happened, and now we're just in that blurry space. And I don't think we appreciate blurs enough in mm -hmm. negotiations. Yeah. Where the German foreign minister uh, yesterday, she said in an interview with a French newspaper, French news outlet, that she wouldn't be against, uh, if the Poles were to send the leopard tank, she wouldn't be against it. But she doesn't have the authority to approve it, only the chancellor has. Mm -hmm. So there's a chance that the Poles just go ahead and do this. Mm -hmm. And... Chancellor Schultz never has to say that he actually approved it, but it won't get in the way of it actually happening. So my takeaway from this is don't underestimate the value of the blurry statement. Yeah, yeah, and committing without fully committing and just kind of floating a thing out. So the journey we just did is you, you were saying you like well-reported, grounded, fact-based news, <laughs> and I then celebrated the blur. <laughs> Super. Well, Glad thank we you. There. Welcome we to there. our show. Um, where are we going next? Because uh, we had we had a couple topics that uh, that we wanted to touch on. Um, I think probably the value of college is one of those things. I think that's a natural segue from how we consume information and perhaps an informed electorate to the value of college and and how we are approaching that now. I, I know I've been having some conversations in my family, um, particularly a little cousin of mine, um, actually. Uh, 
siblings um, of my dad's cousin. So uh, the siblings are 17 and 19, respectively. Um, but one has like been into college and left to pursue a trade. And the other one is an incredible artist, and she's looking at a couple of high-end art schools. And then VCU, which is a quality art school, but the price point's very different from mm. private to, to public, and they're here in Virginia. And so the conversation around what is education, why do we need to go to university, um, God, I hang out with you too much, university. Uh, yeah, like that conversation is real, and I know you've been having a similar conversation in your household, and so all of this to me, I think, is really fascinating as we're probably 15 years behind the point where you had to go to school, but there's a residual uh, societal push for a thing that stopped making sense probably just over a decade ago is what I posit. So you touched on a well-informed electorate as the mm. segue to this piece. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think a beautiful anecdotal test of whether Americans have confidence in their education system is to describe the Australian voting system. Mm. I've been talking about this quite a lot. The Australian system. <clears throat> Don't you have to? Yeah. Oh. You're legally required to vote. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in Australia, you, you have to vote. You will be charged a small fine if you don't vote. And the idea, the, the way that the Australians celebrate their system is that it actually results in fairly centrist governments because when you have the whole electorate or almost the whole electorate vote, they tend to line up with pretty moderate governments of left or right and the extremes don't get so much voice. Now, when you mention this to an American audience, the look of horror mm. that we might have the average American vote mm -hmm. to me is a bit of a tell mm -hmm. that says hey, I don't have confidence that we're educating our country at a reasonable level that is yeah. a well-informed voter. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying the Australians do either. I'm just saying that's their system. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean... Can, this... I, can I change my mind? Can I, I'm <laughs> we can do that. It's our yes, show. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my mind because the segue was well-informed electorate in, as we rolled into the is college valuable conversation. And I don't know that one becomes well-informed as a voter in one's country by going to university. Like that that so actually is what I, I, would, I, I shouldn't would have conflated the two. And, and if we, if we, well, perhaps, but I think there is a debate about where we put our resources, of whether we put our resources into uh, generalist higher education mm. or we put further resources into the more junior levels of education um, to offset. Without question, the United States has the best academic institutions, mm -hmm. it, certainly at graduate level, sure. uh, around research, whether you measure around Nobel Prizes, research awards, those sorts of things. Now, why is that? Is it because um, Americans are inherently brighter? I think the rest of the world would disagree with that statement. Probably. Well, as someone who's brighter, <laughs> the, the rest of the world is wrong. <laughs> Probably because of the amount of investment that goes into private institutions. Yeah. Right? If you, I, I went to graduate school at Georgetown University. I went to undergraduate at the London School of Economics. They, the physical resources that are available in each of those mm -hmm. are, you know, the LSE looks like a, a squat flat in, uh, you know, East London compared to Georgetown looks like the Ritz-Carlton. Like Hogwarts. Right? It looks yeah. Like, yeah. No, it's great. So the, it literally does look it like does. Hogwarts, actually. The, you get a free broomstick when you go. The, so, so does one make it better? Not necessarily, but the resources that are available to you are, yeah. are off the chart. Now, if we jump back to Germany a second and we look at the German education system and the amount of investment that goes into apprenticeship, apprenticeship systems mm -hmm. and skills-based, 
we have, it feels like in the US and somewhat in the UK, sort of parked college or university yeah. as being this necessary middle class thing without really looking at the numbers, the mathematical ROI. So we're teaching kids how to, in, how to invest and save for the future. Mm -hmm. And then there's college, which is just this de facto given that I feel we need. But do you feel that that debate is starting to move a little bit? No, I, th I think it is because so many variables have changed around that, right? The technical expertise that one got in college was very real probably 30 years ago. Let's kind of, let's put that mark. Yeah. I think I said 10 or 15 to start, but 30 years ago, um, you're at the early 90s. Like there are technical skills that one goes to learn in college. Now we have the internet. And it's not to equalize the two, and that you can, but you've got significantly different access to information that you don't need to go learn from the best of the best. You can rip their book illegally yeah. online yeah, if yeah. one were inclined to do that, right? Um, the the second piece is, as I think about um, job requirements, I think we've just now got enough data to say on-the-job training does as much, if not more, as what you learned in school. I have a degree in entrepreneurship. I learned more getting my ass kicked building <laughs> companies than I did in school. And I came out of a pretty solid program, right? Yeah. Not a ding on the program, just the the pace at which the world changes says you've got folks who have paid their dues to learn a thing at a PhD level so they can come back and teach. And at that point, unless they are keeping sharp and new on the next body of literature that's being built right now, they're already behind the curve. That's not a ding at academia. I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. But yeah, there's just a, some of the learning is antiquated. Um, and then as we think about the rising cost, we have parents and their parents who made very real purchase decisions around housing and uh, the cost of having a child and school on top of that. And now not just inflation, just the astronomical cost of college is not the, the cost in return doesn't make sense in the same way it did. So yeah, the landscape has changed in 30 years, rightfully so. I think that's good. But we haven't quite recalibrated the you're not valuable unless you have degree in the at the same pace that the rest of the world has moved. And the power of this just assumption that you yeah. go to college <clears throat> that we're not questioning is, I mean, I, I completely sucker it. I've reflected on this with my three kids <laughs> of like, well, oh my God, what if they didn't go to university? It would be breaking the family tradition. It would be breaking the family tradition of one generation <laughs> in our whole yeah. family existence yeah. of Wayne's. Only one generation has been, which is my brother and I, um, Across everybody, and and even my brother's debatable because just getting <laughs> drunk in a pub in Liverpool, I'm not sure it counts, even if you do it for three years. So I went to class. I'm not sure he did. So so, but you get pulled into this. Oh well, it it has to be. And yeah, I so look. I would like our veterinarians and our physicians and our engineers yes. to spend a lot of time in those ivory towers. Uh -huh. But maybe for a future edition, we go deep on just running through the mathematics and the economics. Maybe we invite a couple of guests on to talk about, look, how do we break the assumption and run through? The one last thing I'll say is, as this conversation's come up, people have asked, well, you all require a degree to work at the firm, at the Envoy portfolio, we? which we don't. Okay. But then it led that me- would be news to But me. then it led me to think about the academic qualifications of our team. And I realized I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. Just for instance, do you know if Perry has a degree? And if he did, he's sitting in the room with us, what he studied? What we, did, uh, no. You have no clue, I, do you? <laughs> Although Perry's <laughs> looking at me, and I'm not sure he has a clue either, so I feel yeah. less We're not bad. sure that's Perry knows whether he went to university <laughs> or not. I met, but I I met but Perry in college. Hey, I did. But whether he was in college and whether right. I was in college, I don't know. Well, you, I, right, let's just be clear. You you met each other 
on the grounds of a university. It does not N- mean that college. either of you were. There was a college yeah. within stones in the throw. city. In People were met. learning when we were All right. hanging out. Okay, um, couple more, couple more things before we wrap up. The are we going to talk about work from home? <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, it's in. The, it's, should we revisit everybody's, this one? Everybody's talking about work. From everybody's home. talking right. about work. From Let's home. just give our respective rants and let the people move on. Yeah. Okay. I I don't actually disagree with bringing people back from work. So Howard Schultz had a bit of a tantrum. It seems at Starbucks. He in did. The, they had asked people to come in one day a week. They the people didn't come. Yeah. And so he's now requiring, I think, three days a week. I mean, I'm going to take a different different tact on okay. this conversation, and it, it's actually around how we save money. The psychology of saving, and we spend a lot of our time thinking about behavioral economics yeah. and how people make decisions. Um, <laughs> what uh, the last thing I built was a bank for freelancers, right? And it was uh, we automated tax withholding because freelancers can't do that. And this is not a non sequitur, I promise. Um, we automated tax withholding, so in in a freelancer gets paid a dollar, they've got to pay Uncle Sam thirty cents of that dollar, and they're expected to do that on their own. When you have gainful W two employment, somebody has taken those thirty cents already, and so you get seventy cents, and you feel less shitty about it. Like the psychology would say, if you give me a full thing and then take a part of it back. I feel less good than if you had just given me the partial thing in the first place. That is what's happening with work from home. We got forced into this environment where we got to go home and we had to be productive there because we could not be in the office. And now I've had the full thing or what feels like the full thing or what feels more comfortable, more interesting, more able to live life fully in the way that I want to, and now you're asking me to give that up again. And so it's just psychology here, rather than is it really like, sure, people are looking at productivity and numbers, we're having the soft conversation around the water cooler and building rapport with each other, and all of those things are real, but really the tantrums we're having is I want you here in front of me as the boss, and me as an employee feeling like, well, I got to go home, I don't wanna come back because it's different and I've already had this beautiful version of working better than being in the office and commuting and being stressed. And so um, I'm not quite in a place to weigh in on who's right. I think they're, both parties are interesting. There are arguments to both sides, but I know what's happening, why it's so painful right now, and that's about psychology. That's very interesting that it's about having it taken away from us yeah. as much as the thing itself, yeah. the, the inherent value of the thing. Yeah, I, I will say I have been deeply underwhelmed <clears throat> at our ability to get to the core issue of the problems. I still think we're solving for the wrong thing. Mm. I don't believe that people wake up every day and say, I would like to transfer part of the real estate that I pay for to my corporate employer and turn it into a workplace. I'm not convinced that people do that when they wake up every morning. I do think that commuting is terrible. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind that, that just simple things that we don't have staggered st- staggered drive times, that we've never had staggered drive times, that we don't have reasonable Wi-Fi on trains and subways, that we don't have workspaces. I, I feel that the commute, office space, collaboration, focus time, uh, time zones, and vacation, holiday time, actual time off, are all things that are in play that have not been solved in any way yeah. by particularly the HR community. I, I would put this on the HR community for not really negotiating hard and going for those things. And but they've all I, been bucketed as work from home. Yeah, but I think where you led into, which is I can't believe somebody wants to give their the thing that they pay for, the asset that they have purchased or lease, give that to their employer 
but consider that folks would rather do that than go into the office. Like as I yeah, think yeah, yeah. about yeah. where we're getting hung up, it's like I can't believe that folks would want to give we, a corner of their tiny apartment in New York and would rather stay at home than go to the office, and they're still choosing to do that. Let, let's presume, yeah, yeah, let's presume people have the will to work, that yeah. they are contributing, that they are choosing, that, that the office and or commute is so terrible mm-hmm. that I'm going to hand over some like the physical real estate that I pay I've for. I've got 800 square and, feet. Right? And bringing, bring into my home a corporate listening device, mm-hmm. which let's be fully truthful. Yeah is are things that we do not switch on our phone, but we know the capabilities of what, whether that is keystroke monitoring, listening to that device, the things that are in people's contracts that they don't pay attention to, yeah. while simultaneously tweeting about how important personal liberty and privacy is. Like, we're willing to do all of those things because the office environment is so terrible. Yeah. 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 So that is, that is a I would failing just like of... Addressing. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that is a failing of the corporate environment that we have created. And you and I talk about a great place to work versus a place to do great work. Um, I'm, it, it feels like the rest of the world is finally having that conversation, which is if I'm coming back, it doesn't have to be the foosball table or ping pong or free lunches, oh, please. but it does no have to be table. something that is uh, worthwhile to get out of my small apartment or large house, right? I'm not going to say yeah. it's just New Yorkers or San Franciscans uh, who are having this conversation. We are across the country, across the world at this point. But we've got CEOs who are saying, I demand you come back. It's not your choice to do that. And I'd argue it is someone's choice where and how they work. <laughs> but as the economy is changing, as we're having conversations about what work-life balance looks like or work-life integration, like we're having a series of conversations Based on the last two and a half, three years of uh, globally traumatic experience, we're having that conversation in the context of what work is and how we've recalibrated and learned a little bit about, about ourselves and how we do work alongside the people that we enjoy working with. And so I, like all of those variables are real. And so quick quick yeah. addition to that trauma of trauma, that's what I was saying, to that um, dissonance about what's going on is, of course, that huge swing of control from employee to employer. Yeah. And I was reminded by a piece in the New York Times last week that um, a significant portion of the workforce have not experienced a uh, layoff environment. Mm-hmm. So if even with the banking crisis in 2000... Is that just by age? 2008. So if you worked in tech, yeah. which is really being hammered right now, um, yeah, purely by age. Mm-hmm. If you didn't live through the 2000 crash mm. then and you didn't work in finance during 2008, you haven't experienced this before. So you have just presumed a job market. You have presumed that jobs are out there. And then, of course, the executives that you're working for have been through this. They are not presuming that. And so you have this sort of battle field, a mm. battlefield where some are war hardy on this work from home battlefield yeah. and others aren't. And so I think that just adds another element. So let me, and let me make sure it. I've got the ages right before we move on. Yeah. That, that would be mid to young millennial and Gen Z who have stepped into the workforce. Yeah. So if you and the were, older millennials were just out of school at 08. So it was hard to get a job, but they've never not had a job after that. After that, they've never okay. not had a job. Yeah. So yeah. so back to your having it taken away, yeah. they, they found it hard to get. Mm-hmm. So even if you came out of school in 2008, it was sure. hard to get a job, yep. but they didn't have a great job taken away. Yeah. So now this is the first experience where you were working for Salesforce or you're working for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. You just presumed that that income was coming in and now that has gone away and there isn't just a replacement job. Yeah. Uh, and so whether that's right or wrong doesn't really matter, but it's against that context is the, 
the people who are sort of battling with their bosses about where they work. If you're mm -hmm. an employee of Apple, Apple have said you need to be in for three days. Mm -hmm. If you're of a certain age group, you're just background operating assumption is that there's a healthy job market in the background. Yeah. So and so that puts a different. I, I mean, it means we're not talking the same language. Yeah. The mm. okay. So before we go, uh, we had foolishly posted to LinkedIn that um, we <laughs> might cover your passions around ideation. So if we were solving problems like. Uh, if we were solving for terrible workspaces or solving for commute, we might default to a brainstorm. Mm. And you have been very passionate around brainstorming being a terrible way to generate ideas. And we had promised that you'd address this. So why is brainstorming bad? <laughs> brainstorming is not bad. It's just not the best. Um, so brainstorming, I won't go into a full history diatribe. We can, we can do that another time. What I will say is we've been using brainstorming since the late 40s, early 50s. We used to call it thinking up. And it was quite literally throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks, yeah. right? Like that was the technique. You get a bunch of really smart people, ostensibly smart people in a room and you all come up with ideas to solve It's those post-it notes on the wall. Yeah, yeah. like post-it notes, chalkboard. I think it was a chalkboard at that yeah. point, right? But, but quite literally, it was get people in the room and you just kind of throw things out. You yell them out. And what we know now is twofold. One, we societally, in Western culture at least, opt into brainstorming overwhelmingly over the other ideation techniques out there, of which there are 300, quite a bit of overlap. Um, but kind of distill it to the top 100 ideation techniques, we use brainstorming over 40% of the time. Um, what we also find is that brainstorming doesn't highlight the um, the voices who may not be as extroverted in the room. It doesn't allow people who process information differently to think and distill their thoughts and then articulate them. And it doesn't make space for hierarchy or power in the room. So the boss is here mm. or the uh, chief creative. Think the Don Draper type. If so you're the Don Draper type throws an idea on the wall and yeah. everybody coagulates around that we idea because that's a safe thing. place to be. It's okay. a safe place yeah. to be. It's uh, Yeah, it's not risky to agree with Don. Even if Don's wrong, we all know it was Don idea, right? And so brainstorming creates that environment where hierarchy, power, extroversion, and ability to move at the same pace as the rest of the crew are high on the list of requirements for existing in that environment. And that doesn't make space for the rest of folks. And I, I chuckle as you and I are having this conversation and you and I are the loudest voices in the room and move quickly, et cetera, et cetera. So brainstorming is great for us. It's not great for those who have to be in the room with us, right? Uh, and so what I would what I would introduce as a counter to that, there are number of techniques, but brain writing softens some of those hard edges of brainstorming. And brain writing's really simple. You can use a two-minute timer. Uh, you can adjust the time once you get the technique. But the very short is, instead of everybody throw out your idea, you give everyone a, in, in the session a piece of paper. And you have them write the prompt, I like how might we statements, how might we solve for the pothole in the middle of the road. Just write the how might we statement or the prompt at the top of the page. Give people two minutes to just orient to the prompt. Have them keep their pencils down, don't write anything. And then for the next two minutes, have them jot sentence fragments, ideas, one-liners, bullet points, etc. Jot as many ways to solve that problem as possible on their paper in front of them. When you're done with those two minutes, pass the paper to your right. You can pass it to your left. You can break the rules if you want. Uh, but pass the paper to your right and give another two minutes to orient to the page. And then the next two minutes have the people who have that piece of paper in front of them continue the list 
of potential ideas. What we find is that, A, you'll look at the ideas of the person who passed the paper to you, and you'll be prompted to come up with new ideas. You'll be inspired with new things. Or you'll continue your list of, I didn't get to finish in the first two minutes. I'm going to continue the next two minutes on this new piece of paper. But what you get to do is you kind of normalize the, you flatten the hierarchy in the yeah, room. Yeah. If you've got people writing on paper, there's no longer a power dynamic. Even if you know your boss's handwriting, by the time you get through four or five it's revolutions, it's also mixed in. It doesn't. It's, mixed it's, in. it's out there already. So you flatten okay. the hierarchy there. You've given people who need to process and don't move in real time two minutes to just think, sit with their thoughts in silence, and not write. You've given them the space to do what they want to do. And similarly, for the folks who are introverted and might just not speak up, you've now given everybody the same voice in written. Um, and so brain writing as an alternative to brainstorming gets you to the same place. But when we run a, an ideation session, we spend 15, 20 minutes on a problem. We'll come up with 15 or so ideas um, when you do brainstorming. 15 decent ideas, maybe 20. When you do brain writing, you multiply that by five or six or as many turns. I find that you get 30 or 40 ideas in front of you on a sheet of paper and say you've got 10 people in the room, you've got 10 times that number. And then of course there's overlap and there's just really bad ideas. When you filter down, I find you get five or six X what you would have if you were brainstormed. So you get a higher number of ideas. I find better quality ideas just by volume and you've got everybody participating. So diversity of ideas is improved. And I find that you get better outputs as a result of that. And then you go refine. So that's my rant against brainstorming. It's just not optimized, but for two or three people. So it's optimized for, for people like you and I. Yeah. All right. On that note, Perry, we're not changing our system at the firm because I get my voice if we do brainstorming. <laughs> Don't let the team listen to this. P Perry's face said all it needed to say. All right. So last piece. Uh, for the first time ever this week, yeah. we are going to be deploying fake money in an exercise. And I, I want to let you know that the fake money arrived this morning. I, I saw opened it. the packet, and it's pirate money. It is plastic gold pirate money. I've never been more excited to do an exercise. I feel plastic I feel both rich, rich and a pirate at the same time. So if anybody made it all of this way, okay, and you write a, either a comment on LinkedIn or you drop us an email, and just put in the put in the comment box or the header pirate, we will send you your own pirate coin to remind you that brainstorming is a terrible way to move forward and you need to give voice to other people through other methods. I would prefer pirate flag, but you can write pirate if you choose to. We'll give you the option to do that. Just pirate flag emoji. Draw a pirate flag? If you draw a pirate flag and mail it to us, I will send you all of Scott's pirate booty. These people have better things to do. Actually, if they've made it this way, they do not have better things to do, so screw it. Yeah, Draw a pirate flag. And that was Envoy Recorder Radio. Thanks for tuning in.